Dear Father in heaven, we thank, you for, uh, we thank you for the sunny day and for the gift of creation, for the gift of your word, Lord. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to understand and to apply to ourselves what you would be teaching us. Help us to, to see clearly um, the gift of your son and his coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to start with this. This is a quote from the Screwtape Letters, which often mentions a favorite of pastors everywhere. It's a C.S. Lewis's book. It's written in a satirical kind of style. So he actually writes it from the perspective of a demon. And it's an older demon who's writing to a younger demon about his patient, by which he means this demon has a, um, one particular person whom he's trying to lead to hell, trying to lead away from God. And in this particular section of the Screwtape Letters, the demon, um, Screwtape, is writing to Wormwood, the other one, about um, church and how ch- churches can actually be part of uh, an ally in his work. So listen to this. He says, when your patient gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. What he's getting at in this section is saying all the ways in which you know, the church and the actual people who are in the church can seem to be a kind of letdown from the exalted ways in which the scripture talks about the church as the body of Christ. Well, who are the people that we have in the pew? It's just normal, regular old folks like you and me, sinners, saints too, but on the outside don't look to be particularly special necessarily. And so the demon's saying, hey, this is what you need to do. Just point him to all the other problematic people in the pew beside him, and he'll see, ah, I don't know if I really believe in God after all. This is one of the reasons that people will give for why they don't go to church. Because the people in church, they, they're just regular old folks. They're sinners. I don't want to have anything to, to do with them. But what are other reasons that people give for why they don't go to church? What are some of the, the explanations that folks might have? Does not to say excuses, though sometimes it's that, for why they stay away from the church. What do you think? What are some of the, the reasons that you hear out there? Perhaps from, from people you know, family even. Not enough time. Okay, not enough time. Time is short, time is money, and I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm too booked. I can't fit church in. Sure. I've heard it all before. I've heard it all before. Yep, same old story over and over again. There's some truth to that, right? (laughs) But uh, that's also misleading, to put it mildly. Yeah, other reasons. Yeah, Hans. Full of hypocrites. Full of hypocrites, that's right. We've got room for one more. So uh, (laughs) I always respond to that. Yeah, Jim. Today's society seems to downplay the, uh, the realness of sin. Sure, right. So if you don't believe in the problem, you're not going to look for the solution. Right. Jesus says, I've not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Well, if you don't think you're sick, you're going to stay away from the great physician. You don't talk about sin, that can certainly have that effect. Yeah. Other reasons, explanations, excuses that you hear from folks? It's time, lack of sense of sin, heard it all before, hypocrites. It's, yeah, Sam. I won't fit in. I won't fit in. Okay, so folks might say, you know what? I'm, I'm too much of a sinner. Maybe they're too acutely aware of their sin. They say, 
I don't know if I can fit in with all of those, you know, nice people over at church. Because, I, or what I'll hear sometimes people will say, I'm afraid that I'm going to get struck by lightning, right? When I walk through the door, they'll say that half joking, but they're kind of thinking, well, actually, maybe that will happen. So that sense of I won't fit in, that certainly can be a reason. Yeah. Holier than thou. That the people in church are holier than thou. Yep. They're self-righteous. And I, I don't want to hang around that kind of, those kind of people. Just funny, because do any of us like hanging around self-righteous, prideful, arrogant people? No, of course not. Uh, and yet, within church, unfortunately, gets that, gets that kind of stereotype sometimes. Religious people can be that way. It's true. Yes, Sally? It's surprising. Um, well, I to 40 years from the big church, 2,000 members, yeah. and some people were so intimidated. One um, person heard the sermon and asked, who's Abraham? Sure. They just they didn't know some of the basic things. Yeah. So we started putting badges on. Ask me. Sure. You know that if you don't, if there's something you don't know, uh, go to somebody that says ask me. You, they can tell you everything from where the bathrooms are. Right. Who Abraham is, and if they don't know the They'll answer, they can take. They'll you find somebody. Yeah. One of the pastors, but they, some people feel really intimidated. In, yeah, intimidating. I mean, listen, it can be intimidating. If you, if you haven't gone to church before, the thought of, I'm just going to go to this strange place, a building maybe I've never been to, among people that I may or may not know, and I'm going to hear a message that's going to be weird and unexpected about you know, ancient old people that I don't know who they're talking about. They don't even have last names. Abraham what? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of, about it. And I think it's important for us who are so accustomed to coming to church to keep that in mind for visitors, for guests. If there's folks that, uh, friends that you might invite to church to remember, hey, listen, when you come for the first time, it's a little bit scary. That's why it is so important and valuable for it to be a friend, a neighbor who invites you along and says, hey, don't worry, you know, I'm, I got a VIP card. They let me in here. I'll get you <laughs> in, right? Uh, yeah. Well, there's so many reasons that we can give for why folks might stay away from church or why we ourselves. Um, and in the text today, we're going to look at why it is important that we regularly gather together with the people of God. So that said, let's dig into Hebrews 10, and we are picking up with verse 19 to 25. And this has been called by other people more clever than myself, the salad sermon. Let's see if you can pick up why that's called the salad sermon as you listen to these verses. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right. Why is it called the salad sermon? Let us. Let us. Let us. <laughs> Guys, I'm tell I've told you before, I'll tell you again, pastor jokes are bad. <laughs> You think dad jokes are bad, and then you hear pastor jokes, and you're like, oh my gosh. Worse than dad jokes. Worse than, it's a subset. It is a 
subset. Okay. Anyway, that being said, this is a, this is an important moment and section in the in the book of Hebrews in the sermon of Hebrews because here the preacher is really making that turn toward application. Over the last several chapters, he's been exalting the superiority of Christ. And in every sermon, there's an assumed question coming from the pews. And that assumed question is, so what? Not in a negative or pointed way, although sometimes it might be that. But just in that, that faith-filled way of, so what? Connect this here. Um, within the African-American preaching tradition, they'll make this more verbal. And they'll, they'll say, <laughs> you, you might hear things. If the preacher's just kind of like going on, he's got a real stem winder, you might hear from the pews, bring it home, bring it home, preacher. Come on. Or even if it gets really bad, you'll hear this. Help him, Jesus. Help him. <laughs> we didn't need to say that today for Pastor Newton. I'm glad, I'm glad to report. But this is that moment in the sermon now where the preacher is really turning the corner. So number two on your handout, having lifted up the superiority of Christ, the, the preacher prepares his hearers for his return. So he's especially focusing this application in view of Jesus' return. That word in verse 19, therefore, it's doing a lot of work, a lot of heavy lifting. And again, I always say, when you see the therefore, you ask, what's it there for? And what it's there for is now he's going to be pointing out to us some of these points of application uh, that follow from all that he's taught us about Jesus. In view of the fact that we have this great high priest, he says. Since we have this confidence through his flesh, that is, through the curtain that was torn at his death, and through his blood, which has been sprinkled on us to cleanse our hearts. Now we have this confidence to come before him, and therefore, he's going to give us three lettuces here, three points, particular points of application. So number three on your handout then, pointing to verse 22. Preparing for the day, the capital D, day of Christ's return, Christians draw near in faith. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Some commentators think that here um, the preacher is alluding to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So our hearts have been sprinkled, and the, the word there for sprinkled, that might call to mind baptism more than a second, but it's actually the, the word that's used in Exodus 24, which we heard in worship this morning, and earlier in Hebrews, referring back to how the blood was sprinkled on the people. So there's this reference to the blood here. And so he may have in mind uh, the blood that then we receive in the Lord's Supper. Could be, could not be. But the second one is surely a reference and allusion to holy baptism. Our bodies washed with pure water. Okay? So in view of what God has done for us, that we are cleansed, that we are cleansed by the waters of holy baptism, that we are purified by the blood of Christ, we are able to draw near to God. Now, this has been building over the last several chapters as we've heard about this, this sense of distance that for God's people in the Old Testament, they were always at a remove from God, right? They were always cut off. They couldn't get too close. But now we are called and summoned, we're invited and encouraged. Draw near. Draw near to God in faith. Hold fast to him. I think of uh, the hymn, we, we should have sang it today, I didn't, didn't think of it in time, but um, draw near and take the body of the Lord. You know this one from the LSB? Draw near and take the body of the Lord. And drink the holy 
blood for you are poor. Offered was he for greatest and for least. Himself the victim and himself the priest. He himself the victim and himself the priest. Jesus has done the work. He is the Lamb of God, but he's also the good shepherd. Isn't that interesting? He is both the victim and he's the priest. He's the one who's being offered up and who offers himself up. And because of that, then, we're able to draw near. Draw near. So literally, again, in the Lord's Supper, we draw near to God. We come near. Now, I'm curious, how many for you, when you were little, or perhaps still today, the, the thought and the prospect of coming up around the altar, like coming up to, or even just the pastor, was kind of an intimidating thing for you. Was that the case for anyone else, or was that just weird little Ryan? A, a few of you, you were like, yeah, it's kind of intimidating. Even for you, Carla, your dad was a pastor too? Absolutely. Still, <laughs> up there to the Holy of Holies. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, yeah. I find, you know, in, with the, the confirmation students, they become acolytes. There's always this moment of awe that I see it in their eyes when we first, you know, learn, okay, I've, I show them, okay, this is what it's going to be to be an acolyte. And they come up, they get to go into the sacristy where the elements are prepared for Holy Communion and the vestry where the, the pastor and the acolyte vest. And they're always like, ooh, wow. I tell them, and this is where I sacrifice the bull right before the service. <laughs> so. uh, but the sense that, wow, we are able to draw near. We should never lose that sense of, of awe. It's a powerful thing that we are invited and summoned by the King of Kings to come near, draw near to him. So that's the, the first application that the preacher lifts up. Draw near to God because he draws near to you. The second one in verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And so preparing for the day of Christ, Christians hold fast in hope. Everyone say, hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. I think of uh, this uh, um, anecdote and illustration from the Odyssey and Odysseus. I think I've, I've used this before in sermons. But um, Odysseus is aboard his ship. He's making his way back to Ithaca, back home. But one of the many obstacles that he has to encounter as he's traveling back home is he goes past the sirens. Okay? Not talking about ambulance sirens, but the sirens are these kind of demons, these mythical, monstrous creatures who sing this beautiful song. And to hear them, you'd think that they were some beautiful people. And that the, the song itself is so tempting, it's so alluring, that their goal was that all the sailors who would pass by would hear their siren song, and then they would go and investigate. They couldn't help but do so. And every single time, their boat would crash on the rocks, and they would die, and the sirens would come, and I don't know, steal their plunder. They were bad gals. Um, Odysseus knows about this. He wants to hear the song, but he, he knows if he hears that song, that it's going to suck him in. And so what does he do? He lashes himself to the mast. He ties himself to the mast. He holds fast to it because he knows that if he doesn't, then he's going to be dashed on the rocks. To me, this is a, an apt illustration of thinking about what it means for us to hold fast to Christ, to lash ourselves to the mast of our Lord. 
But before we think more about that, what are some of those siren songs that can be so tempting for us in our day and age? What are some of the siren songs that even as believers we might listen to and that can pull us away, can draw us away from our Lord Jesus? What do you think? Anything on TV. Okay, anything on TV. Anything we might see on TV. I mean, there's so much of it that TV exists basically to be a platform for selling you things, right? And telling you that you're not as good as you might be if only you got this one product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Other siren songs that are out there. YouTube. Okay, and YouTube. Yeah. And uh, it's so interesting, again, how there's so much advertising that's put in there and it's it's constantly painting a picture for this is who you should be, who you could be, et cetera, et cetera. Or just the simple fact that you can go down a rabbit hole and be on YouTube. Yes, right. Days later, you come out in a daze and you're like, where have I been? Oh, I was on YouTube. The increasing darkness of this world. The increasing darkness of this world. Yeah, I mean, Jim and I were talking about before the service about the shooting at at MSU. And it's like, you know, every one of these is tough, but... uh, you know, this one especially hits home as a, a graduate of that institution, and not only that, but my major was, was sociology, and most of my classes were in the hall, Berkey Hall, where the, the shooting, much of the shooting took place. And so it's like, what in the world? That darkness can, can lead you to despair, to wondering, where is God in all of this? Yes, Sally? I've noticed um, in a lot of videos, almost every video, they're drinking. Sure. Sure, substance abuse. Yeah, they, get, they think that drinking is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, and, but it doesn't necessarily start that way, right? I mean, the old PSA when I was a kid, nobody ever says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up, right? Um, but it can be something that you just, you fall into, and the next thing you know, it's, it's really hard to escape from. It used to be cigarettes. I mean, I grew up in an era where, you know, smoking a cigarette. Right. Yeah, right. I know. I watched Casablanca the other day, and you watch Humphrey Bogart, and you're like, that's pretty cool, but don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah. Other siren songs that... Yeah, Carla. I think just general busyness. Oh, yeah. Keep it busy, busy, busy. Yes. The ambitions of busyness, and that it becomes its own um, distraction and, and siren song. There's more that I need to... That I need to do. Is there something I, I should know about here? <laughs> yeah, Christine need some sat in Rob's spot. Confession and answer. <laughs> uh, Laura, are you raising your hand? No. Oh, okay. Um, there's so many siren songs that are out there, and it's not just, it doesn't just affect the people out there, it affects us. And in fact, Satan, to that you know, kind of screw tape letters, Satan and his minions are even more interested in you as a follower of Jesus. Because you are a mark that he wants to pull away from the Lord. Keep that in mind. Don't forget that. And so holding fast to him in hope, lashing ourselves to the mast of Christ. We need them. And there's a a lovely quote from Katie Luther, Katie Bambora, the wife of Martin Luther. She said, I will cling to my Lord Christ like a burr to a dress. (laughs) Hold fast in hope. It's what we need. We need to hold fast to him. And then the third piece of lettuce in this very unsatisfying salad, I guess, three pieces of lettuce. Um, Christians stir up in love. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. It's interesting, the word used there that's translated as stir up is literally provoke. It normally has a negative connotation, right? You provoke somebody to anger or to irritation. But the preacher, as he's picturing it here, is kind of like needling one another to stir each other up to love, right? How can we be busy about good works? How can we be serving God? It's almost in a sense, how can we be conspiring together in order to serve and to bless our neighbor? It's a wonderful picture. And here I'll just give a shout out and encouragement to to stick around for our Arcadia Care Team meeting. Because I guess one way to think of this is why we have the Arcadia Care Team is how can we conspire together to do good in the neighborhood? What are ways that we can be serving in tangible ways for the sake of our neighbor? And as kind of our theme verse with that, we have 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in action and in truth. In action and in truth. Uh, you know, there's so many things. We'll spend all kinds of time thinking about. I'm in the midst of this right now. Thinking about vacations and planning out trips, right? And all the details of that. We'll think about what do we got to do to plan? How am I going to get um, this new product, whether it be a, a car or a house. I mean, that too. Maybe I need to preach to myself here. Um, how much time do we spend conspiring together and thinking about, hey, what are some good works that we can be doing in the community? How do we put our heads together and look at where there are some real needs in, among our neighbors? That's what Hebrews is, is calling us to, what the preacher is encouraging us. Stir up one another. Provoke each other to love and good works. Those are the kind of conversations that I want to be having more and more, individually in my family and, and for us as a church. So all of this then kind of comes together uh, for the preacher. He says, okay, you want to draw near with a true draw near in faith, hold fast in hope, and stir up in love. And by the way, what does that sound like? Remember that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, right? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. Is the preacher kind of playing off of that? I can't say for sure. Or maybe they're both just inspired by the same Holy Spirit. That could be too, right? That is the case. Um, And so faith, hope, and love, all of these together. And so he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, isn't this interesting? He he gives us this admonition don't neglect to meet together. Don't stop getting together because it's the habit of some. Now, going to church, being part of the body of Christ, it's more than a habit, of course. But it's not less than that. And there is something to be said for just developing good, godly habits. Sometimes we call them spiritual disciplines. Uh, I'll notice that sometimes when you talk about to folks, we asked at the beginning, why do people stay away from church? Nobody mentioned this, but when I talk to folks, sometimes it'll be, you know what? I got out of the habit. And this happened in COVID, right? Where suddenly folks spent a while where they were away from the the gathered people of God, and the next thing they know, they find out, you know what? It's kind of easier just sleeping in in the morning. Maybe at first they were watching live streams and online worship, but then before too long it was like, eh, it's not really that great. Or it's okay, but there's other things. Or maybe I'll put it on in the background while I do other stuff. And next thing you know, it's, it's not coming on at all. Uh, church is more than a habit. 
Attending worship is more than a habit, but it's not less than that. But why do we come to church? I mean, if you'd say it's just because of a habit, that's not enough either, right? So why do we go to church? Somebody asks you, they're like, you know what? I, I know that you set aside time each week. Half your Sunday, you're tied up going to, to hang out with that lame pastor and all those other folks. Why, why do you do that? Why, why go to church? Free coffee. <laughs> church coffee, Jeremy? Nobody's saying that. <laughs> we, make our, we make the best of it. Yeah. Um, I like to think of it this way. You can find God anywhere. You can live in Alaska and be a hermit your whole life and find God. But when you have the opportunity to go to church, your faith grows being with fellow believers. You're strengthening your batteries recharge every week. Gotcha. Yeah, good. So, I mean, yes, you can see God in creation. You can be a hermit in Alaska, but gathering together with the body of Christ. Like he says here, encouraging one another. So that, that's stirring up. Sure, good. Other reasons why go to church. Yeah, Hans. Uh, somebody gave us an illustration a week or two ago about an empty sack. Yes. That's that's something that you... Yeah, you come with an empty sack. You need it to be filled up with God's gifts. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, yeah, Priscilla. It's the one time where I really just focus. I mean, I love being around believers. Yes. But I am really focused one on one with God. Sure. And it, I just, so however He is speaking to me through yep. His Word, it's because we can have our devotions at home, we can do it, and that's wonderful. But this is really time when I'm just focused with God and yeah. the believers. It's a time that keys you in yeah. to be before the Lord. Yeah. yeah. Um, it may sound weird, but it's an, a word, it's His Word outside of me. I mean, I spend yes. every day reading His Word or thinking about Him, but. I really appreciate a word outside of me yes. that speaks to me. Yep. It's a word that comes from outside, through the, the mouth of the preacher, through the mouth of the scripture, through the mouth of the choir. It's beautiful today. Um, we're able to receive that word from without and not just coming from, from in me or, or to me alone. Yeah, Carla? We receive the sacrament. We receive the sacrament. Yeah. And this is something that I think got lost in the discussions and conversations and controversies of a few years ago. Say. The sacrament is not some add-on to the experience of faith. It is essential to our practice of faith. As is the other aspects of worship, too. Talk about singing. Is, that's, this is not just, oh, it'd be not, we, you know, we've got some extra time. Let's break it up with some music. No. Be filled with the Spirit, the Scripture says, by singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Get in. We need each other. We need the, the show of faith that shows up in person who comes. Yep. So for us to say, oh, I don't need to be there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't really have anything to, to bring. I don't get anything out of it. But somebody else needs you. Yes. That's, yes, that's right. Uh, and this is something that if we're just too focused on ourselves, we say, you know what? I'm not sure that I, that I need it. I don't know if I need to be there. And it's like, that may be true. That may not be true. It's probably not. But be that as it may, Somebody else, your brother, your sister needs you there. You are an encouragement to them. And when you're not there, we miss you when you're away, right? And so uh, that's absolutely part of it, too. Yeah, Jim. To be closer to God himself, because we're just a few are gathered in his name, he's there with us. Yeah, we're two or three. I mean, isn't it interesting? Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. Now, it's not to say that God's not with you when you're by yourself, but it's like Jesus is saying there is an irreducible communality 
to the body of Christ. In other words, like there's just something about being with other believers that is just core to our expression of faith. Yolanda, then Priscilla. I love to see the children. Yeah. <laughs> you come over to my house anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I miss their son behind me. <laughs> the, yeah, seeing faith through the eyes of the child and hearing them and with the, their boldness and their confidence, right? Is such an encouragement. Yeah, Priscilla. I was thinking, with the, when you're talking about the communion, mm-hmm. think of the communion of saints yes. who have gone before us. Yes. And so when I'm at the altar, I'm thinking too of those who have gone before. Yeah. We're also celebrating and honoring the Lord in their white robes. It's just an awesome thing. It's a powerful thing. And for you folks who have been in this particular church for a while, right? And I mean, Hans, I can't help but think, of course, of your folks sitting there in the same pew, right? At the same. Same spot for 50 years. So there's really a sense in which, yeah, like, I mean, spiritually, I know that I'm with them, but also, like, this was the, I'm sitting in their spot. I'm half waiting for Pat to show up and just smack me on the back of the head. No, um, she would never do that. But um, then, you know, when you've, when you've been in a, a space like ours that's it's carried, it's like how a baseball glove, when it's been used for a while, it's broken in, right? A, a church like Trinity Lutheran here for 140 years, it's broken in with prayers. And there's just something powerful of, of being here in its midst. Yeah. Anything else? I, I mean, this is all, this is great. Yeah, Lane. It always helps me with my perspective in life. Mm-hmm. Keeping, keeping my life practical. Yes. Keep, keep my life practical. Keep me grounded. In, in, yeah, because there's so much coming on after yeah. at all times. It helps with practicality, which I feel like in society we've lost a lot of that. Sure. Everything becomes political or right. emotional. But yep. We've lost that practicality. It recenters you, right? It's like I got to recalibrate the compass so I can remember what matters right here. And you know what? Just by, again, just the habit of it, by coming, it's like your body, your bottom is telling your head and your heart, this is something that matters, right? It's reinforcing to you. You're, it's a, a sacrifice to get up in the morning to get here. It is. Uh, there, are there greater sacrifices to make? Sure. But you make a sacrifice by getting up, by getting there to church. It's, it's important. It's significant. Yeah, a couple more. Sally, go ahead. Well, this may be a little bit off the subject, but it's about this church. You make it very personal, and that's uh, that connection. Like when you give the communion, you say my name. And when you give absolution... You, you make it, it's just not, you just don't go through the uh, rote of the liturgy. You seem to make it personal, and that's very helpful, and I think that makes people want to come to church if they feel a personal connection with the service. Sure. So, yeah, that personal personal side to it of, you know, with the pastor, hopefully, and also with one another, when we know each other's names, right? And that it does. It just it strengthens that bond. It strengthens that connection. Thank you for, for those kind of words. All of these things factor into it. I think it's important for us to have a reason. I mean, at the deepest level, it's important for us to have a reason for the hope that is in us, in our faith. But it's also important for us just at a practical level for why do you go to church? Why do you go to church? And in our society that has moved beyond, you know, post-Christian, post-Christendom, um, people for a long time were... They've come to recognize, you know what? Maybe I was going to church just because it was a social thing. 
And you know what? I can get that social stuff somewhere else. Or it was just something that people did. And so they've, they've drifted away. We need to remember and remind ourselves, this is why it's essential, why it's so important. Because here, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Receiving it in the fellowship of the baptized. Good. So this is where the preacher is trying to bring us to. He's saying, listen, we need to hold fast in hope. We need to draw near in faith and stir up in love. And kind of the linchpin for all of that is gathering together as the people of God. All right, next section then. Uh, picking up in verse 26. Now here it's going to get heavy, deep, and real, guys. So hold on to your hats. <clears throat> For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a singer for you. Okay, um, where to go with this? It's important in this context, I think, to remember that this is first a sermon. And within the, the context of a sermon, preachers will speak both law and gospel, both sin and grace, with the hope and the goal of stirring up God's people to repentance, that contrite heart, so that then they're able to hear the good news again. What is often said among preachers is that we seek to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. What the preacher is doing here is he's afflicting the comfortable. Or you might say that he is prodding those who are tempted to turn away. So number seven on your handout, put it this way, that the preacher speaks a word of warning to weary believers tempted to abandon the lifeline. To those who have been holding fast to Christ for a long time, and they're, maybe they're starting to think, you know what, I just don't know that it's worth it. Is it really worth it? Am I seeing the great changes in my life for the better? No, to the contrary. Maybe I'm getting beat up. I'm getting uh, you know, um, made fun of. I'm being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Is it really worth it? They're being tempted to turn away, to go away from the Lord. And so here the preacher speaks a hard word, a word to strike the fear of God into their hearts. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 12, in that Famous or infamous verse. He says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. This is what the preacher's talking about here, the blasphemy against the Spirit. And it's important for us to remember what we have in mind here by this willful or deliberate sinning. He's not just talking about, um, oh, it turns out I sinned again today when I sinned also yesterday. We just call that Tuesday. Right? Like that's just that's for us as believers. That's every day. He can't be saying, oh, you sinned again today, or even that you sinned on purpose and you knew what you were doing. Because that, again, describes pretty much every day, even for us as believers. 
So when he talks about this willful sinning, what Jesus calls the, the sin against the Holy Ghost, the blasphemy against the Spirit, is specifically apostasy with a capital A. Okay? We, we touched on this earlier in Hebrews when he says some similar words in chapter 6. But this apostasy, Tom Long defines it this way. He says this is the clear, firm, informed, and deliberate rejection of the gospel by those who have already lived in its joy, who have felt its purifying power, and who know in the marrow of their souls the promises of God and the grace that God offers. Now, when you put it that way, I hope that makes it clear that this is not something that you just kind of fall into one day, right? Walking along in, in clear faith, you know, walking along with the Lord, the next thing you know, whoop, I just walked into apostasy. There it was. I didn't even realize it. This comes as a result of a clear, deliberate rejection of God and his gospel. That's what the, the preacher is trying to warn them against. And so he is speaking hard words to, to say, I don't want you guys to go that way. Now, this is where then we have to say, following fast on the heels of that, if you fear that you have done that, if you are worried about that, that is the surest sign that you have not committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, right? Because for those who truly have apostatized and have turned away from the Lord, their heart is so hard that even that message does not stir up within them, within them any embers of faith whatsoever. Yeah, Bob? Yeah, up until now, I think he's been arguing from the uh, greater to the lesser, you know, how much greater is our Lord yes. than the tabernacle or his covenant over against the law? Yeah. And these are probably Jewish people to whom he's writing, where the law still has, if you want a siren, it's a real siren, sure. right? That we need to do this to live. We yeah. need to, and that's how we find favor with God. And he's sort of flipping the argument now, instead of just going from greater to lesser. Now he's saying, let's do one more thing. If you continue holding on to the shadow, yeah. that's called sin. Yeah. And that, that really brings it home then. And, well, and uh, along those lines, he says, listen, you guys know the law. How Moses said, if someone dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? You can see the logic of his argumentation here. He's saying, listen, yeah, under the old covenant, that was bad enough, the punishment, for those who with a high hand turned away from God. But how much more those who have tasted the heavenly gift who have received the covenant of grace to spurn the Son of God, as he put it in, in uh, chapter 6, it's like you're crucifying the Son of God all over again. I mean, these are hard, hard words. I want that to just sit with us a little bit. But also to remember then that um, the scriptures, number 8 on your handout, testify both to humanity's persistent sinfulness and to God's perfect patience. Because we see these examples within the scriptures themselves of those who did continue in this deliberate, willful apostasy, turning away from God, and those who also fell into gross sin and yet returned to God, were reconciled. So to give just three, um, uh, three pairs, you've got Saul versus David. You have Saul, the first king, not talking about the Saul who became Paul, more on him in a minute, but Saul, the first king of God, who refutes and rejects God and loses the, the Holy Spirit. Versus David. Was David any less of a sinner than Saul? 
By no means, right? David did some heinous, grievous sins. And yet, was he still able to return to God? He was because of a repentant heart. His heart broke. Psalm 51, which he he, um, composed after his sin with Bathsheba, speaks to this. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. Again, you have Judas versus Peter. Maybe this is the clearest one, where Judas uh, betrays the Lord, hands him over, and so does Peter. Peter also betrays God. He denies him. And yet, for Peter, he comes back in contrite faith, whereas Judas refuses to receive the grace of God, persists in sin. And then thirdly, you've got Pilate versus Paul. Pilate, who recognizes that what he is doing is wrong, and yet, in order to appease the crowds, still goes forward in it. Versus Saul then Paul, who had been a persecutor of the people of God, and yet gets knocked off his horse, recognizes the error of his ways, and comes to faith. So it's not just the case that, okay, we're talking about sinful people versus not sinful people. It's all sinful people. The question is whether or not you're going to harden your heart to the grace of God and receive that reconciliation that he desires to give to all of us. Yes, Haley. That's kind of hard to understand because, um, like, with Paul, it seems like God went out of his way to knock him down, right. to make him blind, to save him. Yeah. But the other ones, you know, I don't know what, if he worked over time to try to save them or they just rid of, rolled them off. Right. I mean, I, we have every reason to believe that God's always working overtime. And he says, I... I held out my hand day after day to a sinful and obstinate people. God's deep desire is that all people will come to knowledge of the truth and so be saved. And so he is knocking on the door over and over again, saying, open to me. It's his, it's his longing for every single human being. Paul put it this way in, in 1 Timothy 1. He says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's saying, listen, I was as dirty rotten of a sinner as you can possibly get, and yet still God pursued me. How much more will he also pursue every one of us and have this perfect patience? Yeah, I think it's important. I I really see Paul as not just persecuting the church, but intentionally going after the person of Jesus. Because earlier, his his mentor, um, you know, said uh, in, in, in the Sanhedrin, he said, you know, a guy named Thutis came up, said he was somebody, Mm. and um, and then the Romans came and killed him, and his movement was scattered and came to nothing. He says, he gives two different examples, and I think Paul thought, if I can scatter his opponent, if I can scatter all these followers of Jesus, I can make his movement come to nothing, and then I will prove that this guy didn't rise from the dead. So he's hell-bent to prove Jesus is a fraud, and that's what's driving him. You can't get worse than that. Yeah, exactly. And what are the, what's the first words that Jesus says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? me? Why are you persecuting me? All the more reason then, in that stark contrast, to be able to see the amazing grace of God. 
And that's, we do well to remember, I say, number nine here, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It absolutely is. Like, we should read this and hear this, and if it frightens you, good. But don't stay there, right? The whole point of that is then to bring back to grace. Because then, having heard that and been challenged by that, we're able to hear and to receive anew the comforting message of the gospel. And so let me just touch on this, and we'll pick up with it next week. Um, Verse 32, the preacher goes on, he says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Here you can hear the voice of the pastor and the preacher who's summoning to them, saying, yes, I know I had to say a hard word there, but listen, that's not you. You're not among those who are going to fall away or going to shrink back or going to turn away from from our Lord Jesus, but instead you are those who will remember who you were and how you have struggled and suffered for him. We'll pick up more with that next week because it goes naturally into chapter 11. And so there's a a good um, connection there. But suffice it to say for today um, that while these are hard words, these are also ultimately encouraging words because he speaks to us, to you and me, as brothers and sisters in Christ who have received all these gifts in our Lord and now are encouraged and exhorted to hold fast to him in hope, to draw near in faith, to stir up one another in love. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, these are hard words, but we thank you that your mercy is unending, that you have a perfect patience. And so we pray that you would help us to hold fast to you always, to um, plug our ears to the siren songs of the world, and instead to look to you in all things, to open our ears to your word of grace, and so to uh, remain steadfast and enduring through all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, and if you want to be stirred up to love some more, hang around here in about five minutes. We'll start our meeting of the Arcadia Arcadia Care Team.